Hello, this is Aaron Crossley, and you are listening to Missouri Speaks Social Work, a podcast about social work in Missouri. You might hear some bird sounds in the background right now. I am recording this intro walking around my neighborhood. I am taking in all of the beautiful spring scenery. I see my neighbor's flowering dogwood in full bloom and red buds dotting the roadside as I walk. I am also admiring uh, the wild violets and the wild strawberries that are growing in people's yards, especially my own. You can tell where the environmentally friendly people live because their yards are not quite as green and manicured, which that includes my own. I thought it might be nice to start this off by taking a walk to help set an example of what you might want to do as you listen to this conversation that is the main content of our podcast this month. You're going to hear a conversation about social work and why social work is so white. I'm going to be joined by two incredible people. Uh, first, you're going to hear from Mitt Joyner, who is the president of the National Association of Social Workers. You're also going to hear from Stephanie Smith, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Sofa Solutions LLC here in Kansas City. I had originally intended to cut this conversation down, I thought. You know, there might be some parts that weren't as publishable or might not be as um, engaging. But honestly, I'm giving it to you unedited because I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how to cut it down. So I hope that you will take this time to uh, get out, enjoy the beautiful Missouri spring that we are experiencing, and use it as an opportunity to take care of yourself. Get out, stretch your legs, and also think there's some important thoughts that Mitt and Stephanie are going to to take us on on this episode of Missouri Speaks Social Work. On each episode, I ask folks that are on the podcast with us how they became a social worker or what their social work coming-of-age story is. So, uh, Mitt, would you start us off with telling us how you came into the field? How did you become a social worker? Well, it was due to my mother, and it had nothing to do that she was a social worker. My mother wanted her children to know what they would do in life. And I didn't really have, I was here, I was all over the place, so she made me volunteer at a hospital as a candy striper. And I hated it. I hated it the moment I walked in there. I mean, I don't like the smell of a hospital. I don't like to see people who are sick. And, but I knew that I had to figure out my purpose in life because my, we were not allowed to quit until we were able to uh, do whatever she felt we needed oh, wow. to do. But one day there was an accident and there was a, a, a child that was hit by a car And we were told, I was working in ER, and we were told that the child was not going to make it. And so what this, you know, all of a sudden this woman came in in a coat 
And she said, when the child comes in, he's to go to this operating area. The parents are to go over here. The person that hit the car goes over here and everybody else stays in the waiting area. Wow. And I was like, who is that? I mean, the doctors <laughs> listened to her. The nurses listened to her. I was like, oh, my God, who is that woman? And so I asked somebody and I thought they said she's a society worker. And I, I'm like, that's what I want to be, a society, society worker, work. right? I knew it. I came home and I said to my mom, I know what I want to do. I want to be a society worker. She's like a society worker. What is that? <laughs> And I said, well, there was this woman at the hospital, yada, and she, da, 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 da. And she said, oh, that's Janet Robinson. That's your, your sister's, um, her mother's your sister's Brownie troop leader. Or not Brownie, Girl Scout troop leader. I was in Brownies. And I'm like, well, I want to be just like Janet Robinson. I want to be a social worker. And that happened. And I went to be a social worker. And the thing that I always tell, when I tell that story, Janet Robinson never knew how she impacted my mm. life. I never went up to her. I never called her. I never, I never met her any moment after that. And so I always right. let people know, you never know who's watching. And mm. because she took this horrible lemon and made lemonade and, and, and partialized things and made a thing that was really, really hard and difficult. Parents were crying. It was a horrible part. She made sense of it all. And that's why I became a social worker. And then when I decided to do social justice work, it was when I was at Howard University. Uh, and we were allowed at that time, we were allowed to have food stamps. So everybody could sign up for food stamps when you were a college student. And I signed up, was getting ready to sign up. But, but when I went to the food stamp office or to public assistance at that time, there was a long line. They line you up around, what, seven o'clock, but they don't open the door until nine o'clock, which I thought was incredulous, right? You know, you see right. all these people lined up. It's cold. And there was a woman ahead of me and her legs were swollen. I mean, swollen. And she had a paper bag. And I think I was number four in line and she was number three in line. Well, you watch the social workers or whoever they were, because I don't call them social workers, drinking coffee and having their fun. They opened the doors at nine o'clock and we went in and they handed us papers and they said, fill out this information. And this woman ahead of me, who was like my grandmother's age, looked and said, I can't read. And they were like, well, you'll just have to take the paper and go home and fill oh it out. Wow. And she said, well, I have all my information right here in this bag. Anybody can take this information. And they were like, nope. So I said, excuse me, I'll help you. And I started filling out the information. I took the papers out and put her name in and her social security number. And all of a sudden the director came out and pulled me out of line. You, you come here. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, are you related to that woman? And I'm like, no. Well, why are you filling out her paperwork? And I'm like, because she can't read. And they were like, well, that's not what we do here. And I said, you know what? I'm in the School of Social Work at Howard University. And when I come back, I'm going to graduate and take your job. And you will never, ever do that again. I love it. Right? I love now, it. you know, I, I could risk, and, and what it showed me at that time, I could risk the food stamps for me. We're going to buy extra things, right? But I knew that everybody else in that line could not do that risking. And I know that I was taught at an HBCU, Strengths Perspective, if you don't speak up, you can't be a social worker. So that's when I really got into this social justice work. That's my wow. story. I love that. 
And now you're the president of the NASW. Yes. What, how did you, how did you come into that? I had, I, uh, when I sold Girl Scout cookies, I sold the most. I'm competitive. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I always sold the most, yep. even if I had to have my brother eat cookies. Own your eat power. these cookies, eat these cookies, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I was actually president of the Association of Baccalaureate Program Directors. Okay. I was president of the Council on Social Work Education, and I became president of NASW because these organizations don't work together. And I'm able to kind of help people come together because I think it's important for people to remember the purpose of social work is to help the most vulnerable people. And not that they are voiceless, is that nobody listens to their voice mm -hmm. and it's up to us to make sure their voice is heard. So uh, I love, you know, I'm not a micro, mezzo or macro person. I'm an all three person. All you know, you, you, you put it all together and you're a strong rope and you do what you have to do. And what still surprises me is how reluctant social work is to lead, right? right? The risk taking that we have to do. You know, we're, we're such process people. Like we got to process it. I got to think about it. And why do we do it? We come to a meeting and then we go to another meeting and we don't really look at the risk um, that it's important to do the risk. It won't always come out perfect, but life is like a duck walk three steps forward and two back that's perfect i'm so <laughs> i keep forgetting that this is being recorded and i keep wanting to grab my pen and just write down all of the little tidbits that you're saying because they're perfect i know i do these euphemisms my, my mother <laughs> taught me that <laughs> my dad was my the same my way <laughs> my dad's the same way he always has all these things about more problems than a math book so i appreciate <laughs> that stephanie how did you come into social work what was do you have, did you tell anybody off in your journey? In oh, a, in a food stamp office? maybe a few, but, okay. uh, <laughs> you know, I think for me, it started, it starts um, in Kansas City, Kansas growing up. And my mom uh, is a, a longtime educator. And um, she went um, from the classroom throughout the school year to the community um, center in the summer and always led all the summer programs. And, um, and I say, me and my, my sister growing up, we were never signed up for programs. We were like the whatever, counseling. We were the workers. <laughs> Don't care you how did it. We, <laughs> we were on staff. Uh, and so, you know, just it, it, my dad, my, my, my dad is a um, agriculturalist. And, you know, I, I grew up in Kansas, but my family, both my mom and dad are from Oklahoma. Mm. And so, um, and so shout out to Bowley, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, all those great places. But uh, so very much in the agrarian community. And so my dad, though, was agriculturalist, a, a technical farmer, really helped support. So I would even sometimes accompany him as he went out throughout his various territories mm. and supported his farmers, his uh, farming community, and just um, supporting and, and nurturing their crops and, and all kinds of things. And so I just grew up with very um, care, community-centered type people, my parents. Um, so I knew I wanted to uh, serve, you know, and, and growing up in high school, I did stuff always, volunteered. My sister was a candy striper, so. Uh, no way. I, 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 yeah, hey. yeah. Oh my God. But, my sister was a, a, a candy striper. We used to call them uh, uh, peppermints. But um, <laughs> peppermint patties, but we didn't, 
I didn't, um, I didn't do that. Uh, I, I volunteered in other ways. I started a, a couple of design and, and wrote a couple of uh, youth programs. Uh, I used to volunteer at the YWCA uh, that was uh, in Kansas City, Kansas. And so that's where I spent a lot of my time. And then I, I graduated and went to Fisk University. Uh, so shout out. Hey. Hey. HBC, <laughs> you love. Hey. Right. I love there you it. go. Uh, and so I went and just like I think other young people aspiring, uh, I, I went in saying, I went in as a pre-med major. I said, I want to be a forensic pathologist. I, I'm very curious naturally and um, wanted to, you know, and I heard that the pathologist was the doctor's doctor. So I wanted to be, <laughs> Mitt talked about her, you know, competitive energy and how that energy drew, mm -hmm. drove her. And so I wanted to be the doctor's doctor. And I remember that first year at Fisk, that chemistry class. And boy, <laughs> I think I had scratched a hole in my head trying yep. to figure out. I hate chemistry. <laughs> and then <laughs> one of my advisors said, Stephen, you have got to work with people. Why do you want to live with the dead? Why do you want to work mm. with the dead? You know, why do you want to figure it out? You got to work with people. You got the personality for people. So he put me in, and this is the power of HBCUs. I, I love it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Dr. Faulkner. He said, you know what? I want you to be part of the National Black Women's Health Project. Why don't you bring that and support that here at this? And let's just see what happens. And it's something that he saw in me, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, so he, he allowed me to be a part of that program. And it was beautiful to be a part of the National Black Women's Health Project, which actually was uh, founded in D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, was across campuses all over, HBCU campuses all over, uh, the, the Southeast, but, uh, so I got a chance to really be able to be a, a, a peer, uh, counselor during that time and just really do what I love, which was listening and supporting, um, and meeting people where they're at. All those things dovetail quite nicely into social work by which I hadn't really heard of yet. Mm -hmm. So social workers for me growing up were the people that we used to come to my mom's school to take kids mm -hmm. right so i was like uh, you know so that wasn't even ever in my mind at this time sure. i had at this point met and uh fallen intellectually in love with dr raymond winbush my mentor at this university he uh, led the race relations institute and so he too took me under his wing and allowed me as a freshman to work at the race relations institute which you know you had to be an upperclassman but he let me hang around with him and learn. And we did stuff like the hip hop summit and all kinds of stuff. This was in the nineties, late nineties. Um, and so I just got a chance once again, just was feeding my spirit of this community mobilizing mm -hmm. and this community engagement. Um, and then um, I was able to study uh, in Ghana, um, community mobilization, and that got me more proximate. And it fed that curiosity of really figuring out how can people be better together and what does that mean um and so when i came back to the states uh i and my my mentor was a community psychologist so i got accepted at vanderbilt university their community psych program um after my first semester they dissolved that program and so they had folks you had to figure out you had to do a phd so instead of your, your PhD in psychology, community psychology, you chose the doctoral uh, community action program. Okay. And so I was doing all these case studies, you know, like you do. I had done my uh, thesis on um, 
cultural competency and service delivery agencies. Uh, and so doing all those things, but I hated the case studies that I was given. It, it centered, in my opinion, uh, the corporate sector uh, and not the community. I was get, given uh, case studies about shell companies in an African you know, community, in a community in Africa and, and what would you do? And I was like, oh my God, we really need to figure out how we can have more sustainable energy because we need to do research. For they were like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not the right answer. Too far, too far. Yeah, too, too, yeah, you focus it. And so um, I was really displeased and had been talking um, um, uh, to others. And I met someone that said, hey, you, you really sound like a social worker. And mm. I said, I don't want to take anybody's kids away, honey. Like, me. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, no, I want you to. So long story short, wow. I enrolled into University of Tennessee's uh, Master's of Social Work program. Um, was able to uh, transition and do a clinical split into a clinical and a community management um, concentration um, and what fell in love again with another uh, beauty, uh, Dr. Jenny Jones. Oh, I know Jenny. Come on. <laughs> yeah, be on a call with her tomorrow. <laughs> Tell her how to do what's up. Okay. <laughs> See, it's but, six degrees of Stephen A. Smith. Uh oh. <laughs> But uh, she was amazing and it was everything, yes. And so uh, it, was, it was that that continued to be um, a light to my soul of just mm. you know, being able to support and help mobilize um, and do it in a way that is very human centered, but yes, yet systems oriented as far as mm. uh, really thinking about sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, and so, that, that's kind of my, the way I fell enrolled into uh, a social work, but it, it has been a delight because it's been a great tool to be able to really um, support the community in a way that really fits um, my, my song, so. That's amazing. Thank you so much to both of you for sharing your stories. I think it's amazing that Candy Stripers made two appearances so far in right. our episode. <laughs> but, but also it made two appearances were strong, strong parents, Yes. Right. Yeah. And HBCUs. Right. Yep. I mean, yeah. Strong and parents. You know, my. You know, you didn't mess up for your parents, right? You had to build on. You were they were expected. Right. My, my father used to say all the time, "You don't have to work, but you got to do better than I." Right. That's right. right. And it was it was strong parents, and it was the HBCU. All of those yeah. teachers. And I read an article this morning, which which talked about when kids do not have a person of a brown or black person teach. They're mm. less likely to go to college, number one. And if they get, get into college um, and they don't see any brown and black people, they're less likely to graduate, right? Um, so I know that kind of brings you right into where you are. I was doing a little bit of research to prepare for you all today. <laughs> I try to stay informed as well, but since after my master's degree, I it's, it's hard to dig in sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, I did, I just been kind of looking at Kind of the racial spectrum of social work, I saw that about 60% of social workers are white in the country and about 20% of social workers are, are black. Um, you know, as, as black women, what perspective do you think that you bring to social work that might, the field wouldn't have if you weren't in it? Well, hey, the, remember that the country, I mean, there's 13% demographically of black people in the United sure, States. Sure. You're always going to have white people, right? And sure. the point is, do they tell you what to do or do they mm. accept you 
who you are. And that, that really is uh, the issue. Uh, I think um, I taught at a predominantly white institution. I went, I, you know, I went to two HBCUs, Central State and Howard University. And then I, I grew up here. Um, Howard made me at that time, made the entire class. And that was whether you were in med school, law school, whatever, you had to make a commitment. And my, our, our class commitment was to eradicate racism in our lifetime, um, which, you know, you didn't really think about. You just yeah. said, okay, whatever, you know, at HBCUs, whatever they say you do, you do. But when I came back, I mean, I, I was in child welfare, but when I, I, God blessed me with twins. And so I knew that I couldn't stay in child welfare because I could, I was the head of child abuse mm. and I couldn't take care of my kids and be out. So I went to Westchester University. And there, and this is why, Stephen, we have so much in common. I developed a course on race relations because they wanted a course on, you know, somebody needs to teach race and ethnic populations. And when I looked at it, it was about every other population and very little. So I said, I'll, I'll revise the course and I'll take this course. And I focused the course only on the groups that were oppressed in the United States, mm. right? So that was African-Americans, Native Americans, Latinos, and Asian Pacific Islanders. Nobody, and, and people would say, but you need to put Jewish people in there. Nope, not doing it, not, not today. Um, <laughs> But what I did, some of the things that I did, and it, it probably would not, the ACLU would probably revoke me at my, from a but I used to manage who could come into my class. And you, you know, you hmm. used to give out how many people could be in your class. So I, I was the chair of the department. So I, I halved it, right? And when I saw that I had a majority of white students in it, the class was full. But when an African-American student came, I'm like, oh, I got a card for you. And I would give him a card. So the, the class was always balanced, right? Because we were going to have these difficult and hard conversations that I wanted a balanced class. So that worked. And um, I did things like, you know, we, we studied, we, you know, we, we studied slavery, you know, what really happened. We went back and we kind of talked about, we, we, we talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act. You know, we talked about the Trail of Tears and what it meant and how Native children were ripped out of their house. We talked about why African-Americans and Native Americans, they, they came across as, as African Amer Native Americans were walking and they walked right across all of those places that slaves were, right? So right. some of them stayed there. So we talked about the relationship. And then also when... Um, we finally passed the Emancipation Proclamation and, and slaves went to the North. We went across the reservation. So we stayed in Oklahoma and places like that, right? right, right. So when people began to understand that, students would um, like, wow, I never knew that, right? They, they, they didn't know about 9066 and, and what happened with, with Japanese people. But then we, and, but then I always, because I believe in community and that's what, you know, I think that the, the things that Stephen E. talked about were community and also having that perspective. I always had someone come in and talk about their experience because I didn't want them to see me as it's my experience. You know, it, it's not mystery or history or her story, <laughs> you know, and I would always challenge that what I want you to do, if anything I say to you, you doubt, go find it in the books, mm. 
bring me your bring me your idea and I'll change it. I'll give you an A for the course. And you mm -hmm. never have to come again. So that it allowed people to learn history, but it also helped people see how people are still struggling today, right? Um, and it didn't matter about how much money you had because when you take your clothes off, you know, and you go out into the street, you still can get arrested, right? So the, 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 it, it didn't have anything to do with economics. It didn't have anything to do with health. It had to do with racism. And I say that racism is the human stain of America. And it's what we don't talk about, right? And we have to talk about it in order to move forward. And if we don't talk about it, we kind of gloss over it. But it is, you know, I mean, I, I went to Ghana, right? You know, and I made sure that all my kids got to Africa because what I learned about Africa was the deep, dark continent. I was scared to death when I was going to Africa. I didn't know what I was going to find. And when mm. I got there and saw the street lights and people, I was like, oh, hell no. I did my... <laughs> I was Malcolm X. I've been hoodwinked and bamboozled, right? I, I did my Malcolm X. I really did. Um, That's amazing. Because it, 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 it shows you. So it's not just being African-American. It's taking the experience and living the experience, you know, and, and, and if you don't live the experience, if you go to all these countries and you don't go back to the motherland, I question you. I'm like, why, why are you going to all the other places and you haven't been back home? Um, and, and so, because we have African-American faculty members who are struggling for tenure, who do what is necessary, right? And they mimic the majority. And then right. you have those who hardly ever get tenure because they challenge. So I like challenging faculty members. <laughs> challenging people is a good idea. That's what social workers do. Social workers challenge. How do you think that social workers in general, how can the field of social work make sure that we're, we're talking about people's experiences and, and getting people to share their experiences so that we can have that collective learning? Well, you know, Aaron, I think that to me, that, that's the, the essence of it. I mean, uh, social work is a very human-centered, I mean, there's really nothing that is human-centered, right, that isn't human-centered. But I think social work in its own um, intentional ways, it, it really, that's what it demands. Mm -hmm. it demands that we uh, see the whole person, that we have this Salabona type experience where um, we, we see and meet people exactly where they are at, um, and we do our part um, in understanding the relationship between what is in front of us and what we have, what our part is in that um, arrangement. And so your question about um, Black social workers and, and just, you know, getting curious about what, what is that and what's there, I think... Um, just naturally, what what made me fall in love with social work? It is it is a very uh, black thing to think of other people. Social work is uh, about the relational experience and being able to understand and then to connect the dots. And when I think about uh, blackness and black culture and black people, I see that. I feel warmth. I feel hugs. I feel mm. centered. I feel seen. So for me, naturally, it's not a disconnect. For me, the question is, what disconnects Black people from the profession of right. social work? Because I think the origin, the behaviors 
are very much. I mean, when you talk about being able to successfully navigate the harshness and the realities of the harshness of racism, um, you're talking about a social worker spirit. You're talking about the ability for uh, uh, communities to still be able to eat, even though it was what was left. I mean, that is the essence mm -hmm. of what we're talking about in social work, working with what we have, making sure that uh, every child in the, in the block gets some food, right? Mm. Even, yeah, if, yeah. even if it is an inner lining of a gut, right? Uh, and that's the resiliency. I mean, I think social work has, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about Nightingale and, and other, you know, uh, images, but I, I think about Harriet Tubman mm -hmm. and her social yeah. work spirit. I think about how um, her commitment and even self-determination, she said, even if I got mm -hmm. to shoot you, that's mm -hmm. your choice. That's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> but you're but you're not about to stop this train. Right. That's, <laughs> That's right. The train's going. Uh, so you know, I, I invite us to get really curious about mm. what 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 uh what shifts we are willing to make. You know, we talk mm. about the infrastructure of inequity. We have to get curious about what the infrastructure of equity looks like and how we can connect and be the bridge. Um, to welcome. I think that the natural, um, uh, the, you know, the disproportionate whiteness, which I hear a little bit, Aaron, in, in your question, um, uh, you know, it, it goes back to what Dr. Joyner was saying about how we must acknowledge so that we can address. Without yeah. our acknowledgement of these things, we don't really give ourselves permission. We're not even, you know, readied ourselves. We haven't steadied ourselves to adequately address that piece, that the un, the unspoken, mm. uh, that goes back to just cross cultural relationships, and 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 acknowledging that historically, uh, you know, when Black women have entered into spaces, that narratives have then been made up that do the work of trying to remove voice. I love what you said, Dr. Joyner, when you remind us it wasn't that that we are here to to serve voiceless people. No, we are here to create space so their voices can be heard. Mm -hmm. And so what can we do about the ongoing dynamic, the historic dynamic uh, between white women and black women that have been present, whether we talk about the suffrage movement, I mean, in every element in mm -hmm. history, there has been a dynamic between black and white women that we must confront, we must acknowledge so that we can uh, make room because otherwise what we will do is what we historically done is go elsewhere and make that thing better. Mm -hmm. and, and we've done that. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the strength and the power of social work uh, hasn't been removed from, I think, Black people and the Black experience. But the social work movement, I would say, has been impaired because those elements have not uh, been uh, welcomed and space made um, um, for, it to, for it to thrive. Because I would say social work is still happening. Mm -hmm. everywhere amongst black people because it is part of blackness mm. and, and i and i will add to that i mean you me, i have stevie i'm, I'm gonna call you because i got something for you i got something for you to help me out you, oh, you know you know, how, you know how people throw throw things in your way and i'm like oh my god i need you with you know i, I got i got a deal for you they're paying me and i'll give you half right, All right let's roll. <laughs> um, but but um 
you know, again, you, you kind of talked about a theory that I learned called from Edwin Nichols, who was a psychologist that talked about the fact that African-Americans are more member, member people. We do things in rhythm. It's rhythmic. We do things like, nah, that don't seem right. And that's, that's why I think we're good social workers. Like, wow, they're not treating you right. And I, and you know, you don't have to worry about whether you're the same color, where you have the same disability or whatever. It's like, nah, they're not treating you right. Right. Um, Europeans are more member object, right? And so they're more, more based on, I'm gonna write you out the will if you don't do as I say, right? So they, they follow, they follow that type of power, like, well, I need to have that, right? And then um, member great spirit are obviously Native Americans. It's, it is Mother Earth and whatever Mother Earth says. And so you can invite a Native American, you know, to class and they may not make it because they happen to see a cardinal in the afternoon. And that's what Mother Earth, that's the sign that Mother Earth has given them, right? And if we understood that, I'm not saying mm -hmm. that member, member, or member one is better than the other, yeah. but I think where social workers have failed or, or what we have given ourselves up to is as we have moved so far to the clinical, it became member object, right? What can right. you do to enhance my object? I want to have 150 clients per week. I want to make X amount of dollars. I only want to hear about your problems. I don't care how it relates to the world. And everything in social work shifted to the clinician. Yeah. And, wow. and so I, I believe that, that number one, social work should go back to almost like a medical model, making sure that every social worker is in the private and the public sector. You can't leave until you've practiced in the, in the not for prop and the for prop world. But you need to be able to know how to do home visits, know how to talk to people. You can practice when you put your shingle up, do whatever you want, right? But I think what we have done, and, and I know even at NASW, we worry a lot about the clinician. Well, are they going to join this podcast? Are they going to do that? You know, they don't want to hear too much about social justice. And my, my thing as president is I don't care. You know, if we lose sure. some, I'll bring in others, right? right? Because this is not a member object profession. It's not about, and when people say, no. you know, how much money you make, well, I, I'm, I got, I, I'm, I'm living okay, right? You know, right. I mean, I don't know too many social workers. And I know that there are some. But, you know, and, and I get upset when I, I'm on calls all the time and people are saying, well, aren't you talking about how much social workers should make and we need to make X amount of dollars? Yeah, I always advocate for that. But that's not the purpose of why you came into this field, right? Yeah. And, and it's that member object. And I keep going back to remember what Nichols said, you know, you, you know what they are. So now I have to make it so that I can enhance their object. Well, if you learn how to run, work with people, you can run an agency and you can be this. And right. much I mean, I have to think that way. Mm. Um, and and I, it, it is, it, I learned that theory in the 70s and I use it all the time. When I see people, I'm like, oh my God, here's a member object person. You know, it, it, <laughs> no, it's it's so all great. about what are you going to do for me? It's, it's mm -hmm. not, and I'm in such a member member person. I'm probably a little too member member. You know, um, why, you know, I overbook myself and I do things is because I want, I want it to feel right. Um, right, right. And so I think we need to shift ourselves back to that member member group. Yeah. Love that. I, th I mean, I think it just in my own personal experience, the best social workers are the ones that don't see things in black and white, but that see things, uh, see, can see the ambiguity in all situations and mm -hmm. can understand that you can't just put people 
uh, into the same mold because right. every situation and every person and every person that's in a situation, it's all so different. And so what, what I'm hearing you say is um, that part of black culture is that member member, you know, it's more about what they're experiencing and the, and the injustice or injustice that they might be able to experience. And from one person to the next, the same intervention or same solution isn't going to work for the next person. And only through the grace of God go I, right? I mean, right. same experience right. that someone losing their child from a police officer shooting in the, can happen, yeah. happen to my child, right? right. So right. it's that connectivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Mitt, you said that social work uh, as, a, as a profession is afraid to lead sometimes, especially in the, the conversation about race. So I wonder just from your kind of bird's eye perspective of the NASW, how is the NASW uh, poised to lead the conversation of removing those disconnects to use Stephanie's words, to re remove those disconnects to be more inviting to people of color and to black people in, in particular. So I'm going to throw this to Stephen E. Do it. Because I, 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 I want to hear, you know, I'm inside. So sure. when you're inside the bubble, you know, I, I want to hear from social workers mm. outside. I've been going back to the community. What do you want from us, right? You right, know? Right. But that's the perfect place to start. And I love that. I love you modeling mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the, the importance of pausing and listening. Uh, Kim Newton. Uh, talks about the intentional pause and the power in, in what happens when we pause. But I think that listening, you know, I think back to the guiding principles of equity. And so, you know, we, we've talked about this, Aaron and, and Heather, but, you know, uh, doing things with and not for. And so by positioning uh, uh, ourselves or for NS, uh, NASW, positioning itself to listen and figuring out how can we do this with yeah. and not want to do this for the black social workers, for right. the BIPOC. But yeah. in doing it with understanding that uh, black social workers have information about themselves and their own lived experiences mm. that can impact um, uh, uh, opportunities and approaches that can change outcomes as it relates to the organization. So I think having a with not for component um, and then uh, I think listening also gets us proximate to the problem realizing that uh, black social workers not wanting to be part of it is not the problem. That we have to figure out really what the problem is. Mm -hmm. Is the problem the, the constant um, the, and the pervasiveness of racism throughout the system, throughout the organization, throughout the industry of social work, right? So let's, let's begin to become problem solvers and root it out and name it mm -hmm. um, in a way that once again, positions us, gives us permission to be able to um, address it. And then we, I, I, we, you know, we mentioned this earlier, but also being com uh, committed to uh, changing the narrative, being clear about what are some of the narratives that continue to push out or push away or do enough to create a barrier that your, you know, your black social workers that are going through, the, through their day doing their good work says, I don't want to expend the emotional labor that it's going to take for me to go into that space, go into that meeting, engage in that, mm -hmm. right? So being able to really be thoughtful about what are those narratives. And like I said, I think this goes into the history of the relationship mm -hmm. uh, amongst uh, Black and white women specifically. Uh, and then, of course, just generally the 
the tension of 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 really how it, it's hard when you find oppression within spaces that are supposed to be altruistic. Mm -hmm. It is heartbreaking. Um, and so I think really getting um, proximate and understanding those things and naming it, mm -hmm. uh, being committed to no quick fixes, mm -hmm. recognizing that we cannot put uh, programmatic solutions on systemic issues. Because oftentimes, you know, in, in situations like this, as we do our work uh, within our, and, and within my firm, you know, oftentimes people like to put a program on it. Okay, we're going right. to have a program mm -hmm. that helps these black social workers mm -hmm. get connected. We're gonna do some mentoring. We're gonna and and but what, what we miss is the systemic issue, right? And so that's why it's so important for us to take our pause to figure out what is what is happening within our system that is producing this outcome. Mm -hmm. And then what equitable practices are we willing to enact? Right? Because right. equity is all about acknowledging who has been historically underserved or underrepresented. And then doing the work through changing systems and policies so that we can get non-predictable outcomes. And what we mean by that is outcomes that we cannot predict based upon race that are negative. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. we already know what those outcomes are as it relates to social work, um, as far as who is being engaged, who is being employed, who's being employed fairly, where compensation lies. We can go down and we can take numbers and see that we have white social workers that still make more than black social workers. And so the work, Dr. Joyner, that you talked about, about title protection and us needing to protect uh, the title of social work so not just anybody mm -hmm. can call themselves a social worker becomes really important that gets us a solid ground on pay equity. Mm -hmm. So that those that have been um, and have gone through and have taken the test and have, have earned their credentials that they can um, seek um, um, uh, title protection because who that benefits most are people of color who historically get right. underpaid. Mm -hmm. So just, you know, and that's how we become mutually beneficial. Every good relationship is mutually beneficial. So we have mm -hmm. to ask ourselves of what need would black social workers have of being a part of the, you know, not just right. the organization, but the industry, the profession. Um, so, you know, I, I think there are some, some, some particular dynamics to it. Uh, I always look to guiding principles of equity to walk me through any um, scenario. And you all know that. Uh, right. Uh, but because, because it's true. When we use those principles, uh, we can um, help ourselves become very focused on what are uh, some of the, uh, the, the uh, components that continuously stand in the way of inequity. So that's my semi-short answer. Uh, I didn't go through all of the guiding principles of equity, but those are some of the the, the ones that kind of scream out to me. But what are you thinking, Dr. Joanna? Well, I'm thinking about <laughs> right now. We're, we're we're watching. You know, we we love to talk about disparities, but disparities to me are racism, right? I mean, mm -hmm. disparities. Mm -hmm. So the, the, this this. The disparity right now that exists with COVID, right? You've heard the disparity about more African Americans die of COVID, and that's because they come from poor environments or da 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 da. -da. And we've watched very wealthy African Americans die of COVID. Right. So you know, right. no one has medically looked at the genetic makeup, right? You're you're starting to hear mm. now about blood people that have 
O plus O blood, that they're less likely to get as sick. Sure. But but everybody wants to say all oh, the African Americans have died. They all were poor. They didn't do what they were supposed to. Mm. So shame on them. But then we have the disparity that's happening that break is breaking out across the United States of who gets the vaccine. Right. And you'll hear all of this propaganda. And some of it is true where African Americans don't want to take the vaccine. But you know what? African Americans are finding hard to access, right. get on, and even get into the vaccine, right? And you know, luckily I got mine, but my husband didn't get his. Uh, you know, finally got we finally got an appointment, but it's hours and hours on the internet trying to figure out how to get there. <laughs> and then so the other just the uh, today came out CVS, which is right around, is now having vaccine in mm. Pennsylvania. You get online, and it's like all the got online at one uh, 12 o'clock because I'm one to get up. Okay. That means 1201. We got access, right? <laughs> All the appointments were booked. Wow. Now who got those appointments? And that, and I keep looking at it. And I'm looking at these lines and these were, you know, and I was there, there were, uh, there was three other people of color there wow. getting their shot. And I'm like, how the hell are people getting their vaccine shots? Right mm -hmm. now in Canada, what they did is those that were dying, got the vaccine first okay. those populations right sure. now if america really wanted to deal with equity they would have done that they would right. have said okay uh black and brown people all y'all native americans we're gonna get mm -hmm. you your vaccine first but if we had went that way you talk about whoa Right. Right. So, right. so uh, America won't deal again with the human stain. Right. We don't mm. really want to save lives that are black and brown. We want to get in the line. We want to. We want to be member object. Sure. We're sure. worried about enhancing our object. Right. We could care less that all these Native Americans are dying, just all over. You know, some of their tribes will be extinct. Right. We could care less about Latinos who are out there picking the food for us. We don't care. Mm. We could care less about, about service industry folks who are black and are out there nursing and all that kind. We don't yeah. care as long as we're first in that line. So mm. that is the conversation that we have to change. And the beauty of social work is, you know, there are what, over 700 programs of social work. I forget, 493 baccalaureate and 300 masters. And I don't know how many wow. PhDs. What if, what if, and I was at CSWE, if, if CSWE took on, let's really look at disparities and let's do a national study on it, right? And let's show how Amer the correlation is not there, right? It's not that African-Americans don't want to get the COVID vaccine. They don't have access, right? Um, right. You know, they're forced to go. They don't know who to know, right? Because I listened to somebody, well, somebody told me down right. there that we're going to have vaccines. <laughs> so I got in. Well, I don't know that. I don't know that pharmacist. So I didn't get that call, right? Mm -hmm. So the back door still works. It's still the golf course mentality. Those that play golf get all the services. And so we could break that up if mm -hmm. we wanted to. You know, we could take, and that's what I mean about social work leading, taking on a big thing to show the validity of our work, how we can bring change and to work on things. But you've, you've got to get all of those programs to commit to, I say the same thing when they came out with defund the police and everybody wanted me to make a statement on defund the police. And 
I said, I can't make a statement until I talk to the community because I live outside of Philadelphia. And in North Philadelphia, the mothers are asking for more police. They're like, I want my kids to be able to right. play outside. Right. So I can't take that money from the mothers. I don't, I don't, out here in suburbia, it's easy to come from the ivory tower to say, let's do that. But let's right. talk to the community and figure out what they want. They've been working on this issue for years, right? Um, and then you get some social workers who like the women's movement who are like, oh, you're afraid to say that. No, 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 no. Let's do a study. Let's go to the community. But social workers don't like to go to the community, right? Mm -hmm. They like to do their research from the books. Very mm -hmm. rarely will they go into the heart of where all the problems lie. And right. so I believe in community participatory research, um, go where the people are, make changes, get them empowered. I believe in abolitionists. We should all be working ourselves out of a job. We should be like Harriet, go ahead and run. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to let you turn around, right? Um, we, we should be practicing like that, mm. but we want to tell people what to do. A Glenn, the clinician. Well, because your mother ate, ate, ate a whole lot, that's why you now eat a lot, right? right? It's not as simple as that. Right. And it's not as simple as just pulling the solution out of a book. Right. And what I, I mean, what I'm hearing both of you say is that to get, to be on the right track is to center ourselves on people, on mm -hmm. the idea of bringing ourselves back to what people need and who they are and what they say they need and mm -hmm. who they say they are. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's the biggest takeaway that I'm taking out of this conversation is it's, it's all about people. And as social workers, we should know that, but I think we do. We try to, it's in my opinion, it's almost like we try to legitimize our profession by going back to the books and trying to go back to those peer reviewed articles, which are all important. I don't want that to be the lesson that's taken away. Those are important aspects, but if it doesn't take us back to the people and the community, um, and we've, we've lost a lot as a profession, it sounds they, like. I would say they are important, but it depends on who you're reading, right? Yeah. And yeah. so if you have to read peer one, peer one articles that have nothing mm. to do with the community, mm. you're not learning anything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and, and that is, that, that's the problem of why so many um, women of color and men of color do not get tenure, right? Mm. Oh, well, you've got to be in a peer one journal, or um, usually they'll assign faculty to be on the diversity committee to work on all of those things. Well, that really doesn't count towards, um, the, you know, continued scholarly growth, right? So mm. if you do that, you are sabotaging yourself, you know, and you have a lot, I mean, the Council on Social Work Education requires that you have faculty of color, but how many of them, I would like to ask the question, are tenured faculty? Mm -hmm. No, that's a great what, what if, you know, and this is what we mean by the infrastructure changes. And so, you know, and, and you know, Aaron, you reminded um, all of us to not move into binary thinking with just thinking this or that, mm -hmm. but instead, and we, we uh, talk about it in the terms of third choice thinking, and so it, you know, so even if we don't remove the, um, the need, uh, some of the criteria around peer one, what about if we add additional criteria that talks about the community, um, the, the community led studies, how many of those, and if you haven't been a part of a certain number of those, then you don't qualify for mm -hmm. it, right? And so, so often when we think about how infrastructure produces outcomes, that is, that is mm -hmm. where their rubber meets the road mm -hmm. in the case of tenure for, um, um, for um, professors. You know, when we think about um, moving into licensure, 
you know, and the testing. I've heard horror stories mm -hmm. about how many um, social workers across the board, but in particular Black social workers have taken tests over and over and over again and not being able uh, to move forward or getting the adequate support that they need, let alone how that is just a re-traumatizing nature from all the other mm -hmm. uh, institutional experiences right. that have been had. So once again, if we just look at it as pathological and say there must be something wrong with Black social workers, or you know, that's why they're not, it's them, it's not us, wow. then we miss the systemic input into it. Mm -hmm. And this is the compounding nature of racism. That's why it's important for us to study it, to understand it, mm -hmm. because it's easy to pass off some of the outputs as pathological. You right. didn't do what you mm -hmm. were supposed to do. And therefore, because the truth is, even with analysis, like if we go into deep analysis, we are never absolved from personal responsibility, but neither should systems. Mm -hmm. Systems should not be absolved from their responsibility of output. So mm -hmm. how do we really take a more holistic approach in looking um, at, at our problems so that we can then have a more holistic approach in really being able to address said problems. But I think once again, there's a relationship there that has to be examined. Mm -hmm. And for every, you know, I always say this, for every teacher that has to fail a student, they should be asking themselves, right. what did I do and what could I have done better? Mm -hmm. Now imagine if we've all, if, if every president so we're honored to have our national president, but if every local chapter president of the National Association of, of Social Workers said, what can we do? What can I do? Um, and then think collaboratively, right? Figuring out, you know, I'm, I'm a member of our uh, local uh, Kansas City uh, National Association of Black Social Workers, right? Mm -hmm. And figuring out what type of collaborative engagement can happen to, to be a bridge because you have something that we can benefit from and we have something we believe that you could benefit mm -hmm. from and begin to establish mutually beneficial relationships um, because you know what could happen is that we could actually end up changing some of our kind of upstream issues um, and, and really being able to close the gap on that because I don't want us as a profession to continue to lose out because we don't have the cross-cultural relationships right. that can sustain our industry. And, and it's ironic that you say that because Melissa and I are, we were on a call together today, um, president of mm -hmm. NABSW. Uh, and in fact, that was my first professional meeting um, was at NABSW. And what worries me is the relationship is only good as Mitt Joyner is there, right? Uh, I, I don't know who the next president may, may be. So somehow I have to embed it into the practice of what a president will do. That's and so right. that's, that is what I'm doing right now, because that if, if I, if it's just like, oh, well, this is Mitt's whim to be with NABSW. Mm -hmm. So I have to write all of these policies to make sure that we always have this, right? That we always have a so when Melissa's not there or Mitt's not there, that that, that happens all the time. And that's, that's the part of trying to make sure, that's how you change systems. That's that so, infrastructure shift. Right, right, right. right. Thank you for that. Thank right. you. And the, and, the, and the other thing, you know, even in talking about teaching is, you know, what I would always say to professors is that because as chair, we, we could approve all those course syllabi that came across. You show me every, your course syllabi must look like our community. 
So what Latinos do you have on there? What mm. Native Americans and what African-American theorists do you have on there? And then once you have those theorists on there that you teach them so that people know that, that was the hardest thing for people to do. But eventually they got into it. And, and Martel Teasley, who's the, uh, the president of NAD, is talking right now to ASWB because he asked them, what questions do you have on that test from black theorists? Oh. And, you know, you know, you, you white students would fail if you talked about <laughs> Leon Chestang, right? If you talked about villainously, right? Just like you know, your, black, uh, your black social workers are failing that. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So they will fail because they don't know anything about that. So you want all black social workers to learn your theorists, but the world really doesn't work that way. And, right. um, you know, light bulb moments come on, but it is something where we have to promote that a little bit more to be able to say, wow, what Latino theorists do you have on there? So, so what the Academy has done is they have determined who you will study. And that yeah. goes on that test. And at an HBCU, you're not going to get a whole lot of that. You yeah. know, they, they don't, they, it's not that they don't teach that, it's that they, they, they give you content from a plethora of people who have experience. So you learn a lot of different theories, and then all of a sudden you're like, what, what are they talking about, right? Uh, when they come out and they take that test. So the test, you're not, it's not that you're not going to pass it, it's that you're going to have to spend a whole lot of money. That's right, two passes. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, thank you, um, Dr. Joyner, because I don't want this to be a, uh, a another false narrative exactly. about Black people and their inability to uh, um, to pass tests because we right. do pass tests. Right. Um, right. But I think it is this additional piece of the amount of resource because the curricula itself is, or the curriculum itself is um, colonized we have mm -hmm. to have a commitment to decolonize right. the curriculum. We have to make a commitment, and these are these infrastructure changes to decolonize the test. Right. And once again, have a more balanced approach because what we will find <laughs> is that when, it, you know, Toni Morrison talked about the white gaze, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and so you have to be uh, someone that can easily shift into, you, you talk about code switching that happens, <laughs> no, you have to mind shift and totally be focused and centered in a whole nother way for a test in order to do that and it's not that it's not the question of that we can't do it right. it is once again is this the type of emotional labor and the financial labor that it'll take for me to level up because those things and i don't even want to say level up that's a mm -hmm. misnomer but to be able to 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 meet into that space because those things aren't the applicable points that I'm actually engaging. When I'm going through my practicum in the middle of my community, I'm, I'm using uh, Parm and White. I'm using mm -hmm. Du Bois' duality Exactly. I'm, I'm using those things. Those are more relevant. So how can we move to a more culturally responsive um, approach within the industry mm -hmm. that then begins to foster interest? Mm -hmm. Because we know that belonging is a lubricant for learning and for productivity. Mm -hmm. And so if we all, if we have a question about effectiveness or productivity or connectivity, we must look to belongingness and see what is dis disrupting belongingness. And I think that will be a pathway um, to help us figure out next steps. And, and the, the area that you could also add is, you know, again, talking about systems. If the majority, if, if a large majority of white students failed the test of ASWB, 
the they presidents and the deans would change that. They would change. Shut down. Yeah, they would, <laughs> and so, what, what is wrong with y'all? Right, right, right. Or they would say, they would say, we're we're blocking the test. We're not taking right. the test anymore. That's not right? important anymore. So sorry to do. So sorry to do that right. to all of you. Right. So I mean, right? But you know what though? But that that is what history has showed us. Right. Is that when white people um, face uh, problems and, and issues within systems, the rules change. Exactly. And right. so this is this is really about who we want to even be in the game. Right. Who do we want to be in the game? Because that'll determine when we're ready to change the rules. Right. And unfortunately, what, what systems have had to do is wait on, on leadership to change, the complexion of leadership to change. But because there is not as much continuity in that, that to, to, to Dr. Joyner's point, the next president um, could be not only um, a, a white person, but someone who, who that's not a big deal to them. Right. Right. And so then what happens to it? And so we have got to go deeper, um, press harder and do it collectively to really see the type of change. Because quite honestly, white people should be fed up with a non-reflective industry. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I mean, and, and this is what we mean by the interconnectedness of the loss of freedom that racism produces. Right. That we all end up um, harmed by racism because it is not, and, and, and so we have to, and you know, that's why we have to say black people are brilliant in what they do. They are worthy. They are valuable. They are helpful uh, colleagues. So that when you begin, when we change the narrative on that, and then you find yourself without that, you begin to get curious and say, what am I am missing something? Mm -hmm. And then your, your thoughts and beliefs about you missing something then begins to shift your behavior towards that thing. And so that's why, I mean, it is such a compounding and complex approach to this. And, and so we can never give up on the power of narratives, but mm -hmm. we need more white people standing up saying, exactly. I have a problem with this. Right. Right. This ain't right. Right. And, and when, when you say that, you know, you know, I, I, I love the work of Stacey Abrams and I love the work of Stacey Abrams because everybody told her she was absolutely crazy trying to make a, a blue, a, a red state blue. George, are you kidding? But again, her HBC roots told her, do what you need to do, girl. But then she, she brought it home for the OK. So, oh, yeah, Georgia, Georgia. Not then we gave her the task of bringing two senators, something that everybody, even I started saying, okay, Stacey, I'm gonna send you some more money, but- Might be too far. I, I think <laughs> you're pushing the envelope, right? And she did it, right? Now, and now you see the backlash of that, right? You know, right. in Georgia, they're passing all of these rules, you know, the, the rule that came out that I was just like, I can't believe it that you, you will not because they saw people dancing to the polls. They saw the HBCUs doing yeah. all kind of stuff. Marching. Roll, to the, march to, the, yeah. roll yeah. to the polls. Now they're saying if you take food, give anybody food or water, you can be arrested, right? Now, I said to my husband, what do they not understand about Black people? Because when you tell us we can't do something, we will be out there. But at the same time, we need white people, Democrats and Republicans to begin to think about what does this constitution mean? 
right? If is it all about? And if you go and you read Steve Bannon's work, and mm. Steve Bannon talks about the power of the vote belongs to white people. They founded this country. They own this country, and they should keep this country, right? So if if you want to follow Steve Bannon's work, fine. But we have got to we have got to get white people to stand up and say yeah. this is wrong. You know, we've got to go to those schools of social work to go to those state houses and say you we 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 won't vote for you. I don't care who you are because those are where we need people. We need white faculty members to see the passion like I see to understand like whoa this can't happen because this is not equity, right? right. But. If you're just waiting for me and Stephen E and some other people to speak about it, we're only 13% of the population. Right. And we get tired. Yeah. I mean, it's gonna be all up to you. I keep yeah, hearing I mean, people yeah. I hear people here in Missouri saying we need we need Stacey Abrams to come to Missouri and do what she did yeah. in Georgia and do it here. Uh, but we need more people, black, right. white. There can be white Stacey Abrams. Right, there can be a white Stacey Abrams. It should be up to Stacey Abrams and black women to to rescue us, although that's what they're currently doing. It it takes all of us to stand up to keep the momentum and the power going. And I think that the same can be applied to social work. And, and it's not to better African-Americans. I, I go to my member object thing again. Right. Diversity is a good thing. And we can work together. We Absolutely. can be the richest country, right? You, you don't know what you're going to know. So if we could sell it on the principle of what, when you work with all four races, there's all contributions that yeah. one can bring. And it betters us. It be, I mean, there's a lot of monolithic countries, right? But right. what America has is the most beautiful thing if we would just learn to embrace it. Um, right. So. And, and we've seen the power of equity. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I mean, if we think about it just in, in the most basic everyday way, you know, it, for some of us, it is um, because, you know, because just simply our age, we can't even imagine um, a country that didn't have, that doesn't have ramps or, a, you know, that doesn't have elevators or that doesn't have the push button doors. But when we think about that, what I love about that is that it reminds us that, you know, acts, infrastructure acts like the Americans with Disability Act made it so that you can't build a building without putting ramps, without, if you have more than one floor, having elevators. Matter of fact, you got to retrofit those things. And what we learned through that, that practice that, that policy of, of equity is that it didn't stop people who are considered able-bodied from being able to get into those right. doors. Mm-hmm. It didn't stop if people from that were able-bodied from being able to go up on multiple steps, right? Matter of fact, it helped those of us who identify as able-bodied uh, because we have more access and more opportunities. Right. And so I think that being able to take just some of our most simple everyday concepts to see how equity has been infused, right? Mm-hmm. It, it helps us understand just how attainable equity is in other places. That instead of thinking about equity as a subtraction, mm-hmm. that we should think about it as an addition, or I even say a multiplication um, equation, because it actually demonstrates that equity is a rising tide that lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. So when we, be- when we begin to think about who has been historically, you know, um, overlooked or marginalized or oppressed, and let's figure out what type of shifts we need to make to support them. 
everybody else. You think that when tests um, are reevaluated and seen as more culturally responsive, don't you know that everybody else will do better in those tests? Right. Right. And so it, it is It is no different when we begin to really pursue pay equity in a way that the entire country and especially the local community ends up increasing because that person's making more money. Everybody does better. Mm -hmm. When yeah. a group gets access to health care, everybody is healthier because we don't have to worry as much about the measles and mumps and rubella shots that they're not getting that, that mm -hmm. make us, you know, right, you know right. more. <laughs> Uh, uh, open to disease. So I think that, you know, we have to be mindful about once again, our relationship amongst these things is in. So therefore when one group is better, we all are better. Imagine that, but we have to then name white supremacy culture standards. We have to name all those things that have yeah. taught us differently. That taught us that no, somebody has to lose in order for me to win. Mm -hmm. We have to just really examine that because if we don't give ourselves permission to let go of that belief, then how can we adopt a new one? Your exactly. brain won't let you do it. Right. We all have to take our, 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 our brain science class, right? I know I did. <laughs> Your brain will not allow you to do it. Right. So we have to release um, old information, antiquated thoughts so that we can receive new thoughts. Mm -hmm. And we can't do it if we don't take the time to really name those things because it's just been the way that we've always thought. If we don't examine, you know, our right to comfort, uh, our sense of urgency, our worship of the written word, all those things, then we just think that it's just the right thing to do, mm -hmm. right? Right. right? Instead of uh, acknowledging that there's different ways to do it. So great. I really appreciate that you guys have taken the time to uh, have this conversation and just to kind of exercise a lot of curiosity to take your words, Stephanie. I, I thank you so much for being able to dive deep. I wonder if you might have any last words of wisdom to impart. You know, I've been talking a lot, but y'all get me excited. That's what uh, podcasts are all about. <laughs> podcasts are for talking. That's right. I know. Well, you, you know, I think, you know, Aaron, you talked about it. I, I want to encourage us uh, to continue to be curious. You know, I, I, I totally believe that curiosity is a lubricant for change. And that. so if we can give ourselves permission to begin to question, and then as we are questioning, give ourselves, um, build our courage um, to then become doers, because we all have a role in becoming a practitioner of equity. You know, we think about our physicians, our physicians practice medicine, right? It's not just a place, you know, my, my, my physician, uh, praise God, went to Meharry. I'm glad, but I'm also happy that she continues to go to conferences and do all kinds of things to keep that practice going. Whatever we are practicing, we are doing. My track coach told me that. So how can we become practitioners of equity and recognize um, our role? Um, and I think it starts with curiosity. So I just encourage all of us to get curious um, and then continue to do those things. And as we, we transition our question to what can I do, I think we end up being and asking ourselves, who can I be? And that's a really great place. That's a really great question to ask and a really great place to be. So I just encourage everybody in their journey uh, and to continue to um, keep doing this good work and keep being curious about how equity can be a reality. Mitch? Well, you know, so often 
when you are the only one, you get that imposter syndrome, right? Mm. Like, wow, can I do this? Well, you know, and, and so it was really good being on here with you, Stephen E, because, you know, it, it very rarely do you get the time to have that interchange with your own people, right? The, the, the validation is so important. And I don't care how long you've been in this thing, you know, um, you have to be validated. You have to be able to say, yeah, or I had a different experience. But again, Black Joy, I had never met you in my life, but it was just like you were my sister girl, right? Yes. Uh, you know, and, 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 and that is so important. And so what we have to help social work is how to have Black Joy. Yeah. You know, how, how to listen and, and not be worried about, but I have something to tell you. Right. You know, right. you know, to to I do this work. And the reason why, I mean, I, I'm retired. I could be in my rocking chair um, letting everybody my world would be good. But I have two grandsons and they are four and eight and we're raising them to be the best people possible. But, you know, I, I didn't realize when I had when I when when my daughter had I, I say I had because she acts like it is my child. She's like, Mom, you act like those kids are yours. But when my daughter had her sons, my husband looked at me and said, oh, dad, a boy. And I was like, what's wrong? A boy? Because we, I had three girls and he's like, yeah, it's, it's a different thing. You know, it's a different thing. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean? And he said, look, you can come with all that social work stuff you want but they can die. You know, uh, we, we, we got, we have to teach them about being black and mm -hmm. they, you know, their father does well, their mother does well, but they're still black. And mm -hmm. that's a lesson. And he said, you, you, you need to get out of the way while we men take care of that. Right. And I didn't really understand it until I started really kind of looking at all of these murders and I'm realizing like, wow, you know, Jacob or Quaid could be driving from DC to Westchester in a nice car um, and be pulled out. And they're going to they're going to be mouthy because they go to private school. Right. They have all the best of the best. They're going to say, oh, right. da, 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 da. Right. and they could die. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I do this work to kind of convince people or to help convince people. This is a journey social work has to stay on. We have to continue to bend that arc of justice. Um, we, we have to work on building that beloved community. We have to we, we have miles to go before we sleep, right? And so I don't have, as I tell people, I don't have the luxury of retiring. You know, I, I don't have the luxury of being a grandmother who sits back by the pool, has a drink and tells the kids to come to the club. I don't have that luxury because I have two young people in my life that I am letting the world have, you know, and, and I need teachers who are gonna tell them that they can be whoever they wanna be, right? Um, I, I, I have people that when they do things wrong, because they're gonna do things wrong, their kids, that are gonna be able to support them in their own village and be able to get them to learn lessons. And so that's what social work is to me, right? And I don't need them to ever find a social worker who begins to point their fingers. My father would say three pointed, one pointed out, three pointed back at yourself, telling them that you did this and you did this wrong. I don't need them to have doubt in their life. Right. Um, and then when I look at people, you know, I, I saw the other day where a man who was wearing a silver chain had been in jail for like 50 years. A sil I mean, a gold chain, you're in jail for 50 years. I was talking on the phone today to some woman who runs a criminal justice reform. And one of the women she works with is was on parole for four years. 
and then on probation for 40 years. Oh my God. Now, usually it's one or the other probation. And, you know, she was talking right. about Brian Stevenson's work, but to disenfranchise so she'll never vote again. Right. It, those things that we see and we read are not in just in the books, they're real people's lives. And so when you came into this profession, you came in with a passion. If you don't have the passion any longer, leave. It's okay because you, you are responsible for someone's life, right? Now, it might not be that individual life, but if you don't go on that meso or macro level and change the rules and the policies and rewrite that, then other people are going to fall victim. And that's what social work does. So I want people to always, and I, I end with, go back and remember why you came into this profession. Write it and put it up on a calendar. I came in at Howard University not knowing to eradicate racism in my lifetime. I had no idea that in every turn I take, I talk about how we could eradicate racism, right? Um, so I'm here. I give my time. You know, as I, somebody asked me how much I make for president, and I said zero. It's all volunteer work. Um, it's 24-7. My husband, I've worked, never worked harder in my life, right? But if I can get out in front of people and help them say, hmm, and if I change one mind, I've done more than most. We need to get you a cycle. <laughs> That's the moral of the story here. That's the moral. <laughs> We're going to work together. We're going to do some stuff. Because I, I realize, you know, like I get called to do some of these things and I'm like, I don't want to be the only one, right? I don't want to be the only one speaking. Right, right. Well, black, you know, like, black oh, voices are not a monolithic right, thing. Right, right, exactly. Is, yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your black joy and uh, moving us forward toward a world where equity uh, isn't just anticipated or it's just it's just there and, and expected. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking a listen to this episode of Missouri Speaks Social Work. It was originally recorded toward the end of February 2021, and we were squarely centering our thoughts on, on Black History Month. But even as I've had time to kind of sit and think about it, I know I've taken the notes that I took and really just sat back and have reviewed them, uh, pulled out a cup of coffee from time to time, or taking a walk as I still am doing. So I hope that what you've heard today can, can uh, give you some, some stuff to chew on. If you would like to get a hold of, of me and send in any questions you might have or any topics you'd like us to conquer on this podcast, you can do so by emailing a.r.crossley, C-R-O-S-S-L-E-Y, at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. So please send me your thoughts, send me some topics you'd like to hear. And until next time, keep speaking social work, Missouri.